You are listening to the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. Here in Denver last week, we hosted our 2020 kickoff happy hour for Oil & Gas Global Network, Drinking with Geos. We had four kick-ass geoscientists give us their perception on the patch. As y'all know, all profits and proceeds go towards Oilfield Helping Hands, the organization where industry supports industry. So before we jump into today's episode, another huge thank you to all of our event sponsors. First up, University of Colorado Denver's Global Energy Management Program, hands down the best option for a degree in the energy industry. Next up, Denver Petroleum Club, the membership organization dedicated to networking, leadership, and education. And of course, Liberty Oilfield Services. As y'all know, Liberty is committed to our communities, industry, and people through better, faster, safer frack innovation. This really was a kick-ass event. Thank you to all who attended, and for all those who couldn't, we will see you next time. Enjoy. So good evening. Welcome to OGGN's first Western Happy Hour of 2020. We are coming to you live from Liberty Oilfield Services, located in... Beautiful downtown Denver, yet every time I do one of these events, we get increment weather. So those who are regulars, thank you for being patrons. Uh, So let's kick off this evening with a shout out to tonight's sponsors. First up, special thanks to Global Energy Management Program, the Denver Petroleum Club, and of course, Liberty Oilfield Services. We could not make any of this happen without you. And as always, to Danielle's point, the profits and proceeds of uh, each event go towards Oilfield Helping Hand Rockies. We love that industry is supporting industry through acumen and just basic needs. I am Catherine Mills, and you are listening to the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. Tonight's event is Drinking with Geos. We get to sit down with some of the finest geoscientists that the oil patch has to offer, all for the purposes of getting a geos perspective on today's patch. Our panelists of Rock Docs include Donna Anderson, Terry Lynn Olson, Katarina Yard, and of course, Jane Estes Jackson. Awesome, awesome panelists here, hell of a panel, and of course, our mag's finest. (laughs) Panelists, thank you for being here. As you know, tonight is about open and unapologetic dialogue. At any point, feel free to jump in, agree, disagree, elaborate, and even challenge. This evening is about the narrative. So, to kick us off, ladies, Can you please introduce yourselves, give us a little bit of background, what you've done, how you got started in oil, why you agreed to be on this panel. (laughs) So please, Katerina, take it away. Well, thank you and welcome everyone. My name is Katerina Yered. I'm a senior petrophysicist with SM Energy currently. And about 14 years ago, I started my career in oil and gas as an LWD field engineer in uh, onshore Germany. You can tell from my southern Texas accent that I'm uh, definitely not from here. Hey now, (laughs) you watch yourself. Anywho, uh, I got my master's in geology uh, in Germany and uh, I got hired on by Baker Hughes right away pretty much and uh, thrown into the field. Uh, (laughs) And I I got uh, to see onshore onshore, uh, you know, field life, but also offshore Gulf of Mexico. And uh, after that, I got into the data processing and ana- analysis part of the oil, oil and gas business. And eventually, I converted from a geologist to a petrophysicist. It was uh, almost a natural conversion, but <laughs> You still. went to the dark side? <laughs> I did. 
Yeah, it always sounds interesting when people ask you, so what do you do, petrophysicist? That's, that's physics, that's complicated. <laughs> it is, but it's fun too, and I think that's what keeps me alive too. The passion that I have for petrophysics is uh, still going and uh, going strong. So, and I'm very happy to be here, and thank you to Kat Campbell to introduce me to Catherine, and this <laughs> is how I got on this panel. Who has more fun, onshore or offshore? Offshore. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Jane, take it away. Hi, I'm Jane Estes Jackson. Um, I'm currently a consultant. I'm also the current RMAG president. I've been in oil and gas for about 28 years, ever since I uh, graduated from Colorado School of Mines. Um, mostly worked, I've worked in Denver my whole career, mostly for smaller companies, independents. I spent about 19 years at a a small family-held company here in Denver, McIlvain Energy. Um, so I've kind of done a little bit of everything working for a small company like that, everything from operations to stratigraphy to evaluations, um, pretty much everything except petrophysics. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Don't worry, me too. <laughs> and I'm here because Kat twisted my arm really hard and introduced me to Catherine, so, but I am happy to be here. I paid them all, just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's be real. <laughs> okay, Donna. Thank, thank you all for coming. I'm Donna Anderson. Um, I have a long career, and I'm not going to recount everything, but let's just say I've been in the oil business here in Denver since 1980, first with a major oil company who never doesn't exist anymore, became part of Exxon. Um, turned <laughs> out the lights in that office, went back to school, re-educated, got a doctorate at Mines, actually turn in my keys for a year there and <laughs> consulted um, overseas because there were no jobs in Denver at the time when I graduated, um, but I stayed in Denver. Um, went back to Mines as a research professor, started continuing consulting here in town as the Rockies came to be a little more robust in terms of oil and gas opportunities. Um, I tried to consult for every company in Denver. That was my goal, but I didn't make <laughs> it, which was probably a good thing. Um, um, I've been involved in my professional societies. I'm a past president of RMAG, among other offices I've held in both RMAG, the Rocky Mountain section, and AAPG as committee members. Um, I have a lot of good advice about professional societies, but they're important. <laughs> I got hired by EOG in 2006 as unconventionals were really breaking, um, and that was one of the direct results of my professional involvement with societies. Um, stayed on at mine, so I worked part-time for them. I taught petroleum engineers, sedimentary geology, and field camp, so I know some of the people in this room from that. Um, Got any stories? Retired, no, <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> retired in 2015 from EOG as things were starting to dive um, in the oil business, I saw a pattern. And I've stayed now at School of Mines as an affiliate faculty, working with grad students, doing a little research, and I'm writing a book on the geology of Golden. Ooh. So. So that pattern you talk about, we're going to get to it. Terry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Catherine. My name is Terry Olson. I'm currently happily consulting as a geologist and petrophysicist. I work about half time. I entered the oil business about 37 years ago. I worked for a major for 17, another one that no longer exists. It's now part of BP. Um, and then I spent 14 years working for various independents, and one of the stints I had in that period was bringing along the next generation. 
of new grad geologists and geophysicists. I'm also a petrophysicist. I went to Amoco Petrophysics School 30 years ago. And so I've joined Katerina on the dark side. <laughs> but I kept my hand in with geology, and I'm also a past president of RMAG. Um, <coughs> after leaving EOG in 2014, I joined a technology company and got laid off for the first time in 35 years um, when they got bought by an instrument company and was shocked to find myself unemployed, um, but have developed a niche in consulting for unconventional petrophysics and poor scale imaging. So um, my EOG job actually was a result of knowing Donna through professional society volunteering. And um, that's how I, through those professional societies, I know these other fine ladies as well. <laughs> well, fabulous ladies, again, jump in, build upon each other, challenge, agree, disagree. But as you know, we are in the age of consolidation. We are seeing layoffs left and right. But a recent trend, I don't know if you've checked out LinkedIn lately, it's kind of getting under my skin. There seems to be an increased emphasis on decreasing the emphasis for actual subsurf analytics. What this is resulting in uh, are layoffs from geophysicists all the way up to reservoir engineers. And the statement behind it is there's nothing new left to learn. We just need to get it out of the ground faster. So what do you see happening across the oil patch? What's your opinion on some of these uh, statements that are happening? And are we really a science-driven industry anymore? Jump in all at once. I want to jump in on this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because of my, I'm not totally the gray-haired person yet. So I can say that I've seen a lot. I didn't start in the oil business. I started in the engineering geology business in Southern California. And I remember clearly one of my mentors who was a senior geologist saying, well, why does anybody even do a geology degree, degree anymore? This is in Southern California. All the geology has been done. Well, it is California. I beg to differ. <laughs> really? I mean, that was almost 50 years ago when somebody said that. And all I can say is, when I was at Mobile doing production geology, it was during the transition to business asset units um, because we needed to get integrated teams to increase production and put the geologists right with the engineers, and that was successful. Mm -hmm. um, and now, you know, it's like, well, it's, it's, all, it's all the same. We just need to harvest it. And it's like, all I can say is it's not all the same. And when you find out it doesn't work, then you're going to want to call on your reservoir engineers and geos again. We're finding out a lot of it doesn't work right now. That's why wells are costing what they are. Yeah, things don't get easier. The easy stuff has been already drained and uh, down to the last drop. So I think it's going to get more complex. And with that, it's it's more of a, in my opinion, it's more of a finding a team of uh, of geoscientists, of, of engineers, and all of the uh, scientists really in the room to make it work. Because you will have your jigsaw puzzles with all the pieces still bombarded all over the floor, right, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to figure out how to put it back together because the way the conventional Gulf of Mexico staff used to work doesn't work in where we're working right now, right, in unconventionals. And I think actually the feeling that I get is really opposite. I think that people are realizing that if you don't put an engineer and a geologist together in a room, you're never going to get to the maximum recovery from your uh, reservoir. So 
it's it's very important and then to add a petrophysis obviously to that right? <laughs> <A little job laughs> the plug. cherry on top <laughs> and, <laughs> and make it all work but uh, I think the complexity is uh, uh, quadruple if not more than that right it's exponential and uh, going back to uh, Neanderthal days in my opinion is not the right way but it's rather to find solutions in complexity and, and advancements in all the um, science, uh, science, you know, the science parts of the business, so engineering and, and, and all of it. So that's my opinion. One of the strengths of our industry has typically been using technology to solve problems. And that's an appeal you know, <coughs> that brought me into it. That's an appeal for young people entering today. And it's not purely engineering technology. It's geoscientists, engineers, petrophysicists talking <coughs> to each other to um, integrate across disciplines to use technology to solve the problems to increase the amount of oil we find mm -hmm. and optimize the amount of oil we recover and gas. So. And I guess my perspective is that over the years, it seems to me, my perspective, resource play, everyone threw out the word resource play and the implication was resource play. It's all the same. Move a rig in and start drilling. And I and I think the opposite is true. Every single well I've ever drilled is different. They're not all the same. It's always more complex than you assume it's going to be. And I think the more wells you drill, the more you find that out. Well, are we evolving? I mean, think about it. Because most people are making decisions off of just DCA analysis, PV50, or um, yeah, PV50, <laughs> trying to uh, fill in and figure out spacing. But are we really going back to the sciences? There seems to be more emphasis on core analysis, but that to me is telling me that we didn't do it right the first time, which is why we're going back to basics. Yeah, I would agree to that. The, the core analysis that has been done in the 90s and even in the early 2000s is not bringing us the results that we need today. Um, understanding movable fluids, for example, understanding what has been cooked out of the kitchen in the reservoir and how, what is available for us to drain is uh, an important part. And uh, all the curves, any of the curves, really, uh, decline curves, whatever, are uh, misleading, if not not telling us, or maybe just telling us 50% or even less uh, of the story. And, and I think by uh, emphasizing core analysis, and you see right now w with the SPWA, um, Everybody mentioned how they're involved. I'm currently the VP of Education and I'm running for president for the SPWA. SPWA is Society of Petrophysicists and Well Log Analysts. <laughs> Mouthful. <Vote> but, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, we're seeing a trend to go back to the core and, and, and use technology like the nuclear magnetic resonance, like other, um, you know, pore scale or digital rock physics and things like that to really understand down to the pore scale what's going on uh, in situ and bringing it up to the surface already uh, fluids uh, escape and things like that so this part has never been really uh, uh, tackled uh, the right way and I think going back to square one is what we're doing right now but I know the perception from investors Wall Street and so on those always want you know something easy a curve oh yeah sure I'll give you a curve p10 90 50 whatever and uh, off you go but that's not the solution for sure. And we see that our wells are not performing the, the way the decline curve is showing. So Never. we need to go back. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> we need to understand that and uh, not just go and say uh, brush it off as that because now it's not the time to brush off. Now investors are pushing harder on us to deliver 
And I think we need to do our science, we need to do our due diligence, really, and uh, look at everything quite extensively now. I have a lot of private equity clients, and the ones that are doing science, that hire petrophysicists, are a lot more successful than the ones that don't. So there is that, going back to Wall Street, we are seeing a uh, disinterest of the money, so to speak. Everybody's waiting on the sidelines. They're waiting for the next, uh, I guess, consolidation, if you will. Why now? Are we seeing a pushback to conventional assets? Are we seeing uh, just a distaste between this whole parent-child relationship, that that's why, how we're explaining away the issues? Like, what's happening in terms of that perspective? Go for it. I think, <laughs> <laughs> just waiting, you know, don't want to be too rude. Uh, but I, I think that people have been pumped too much money in our business and got disappointed. Uh, and uh, now they're go like, okay, it's been 20 years, right? Almost. Well, right? that was the type curve. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so uh, why aren't we delivering? And uh, um, I don't think our upper management's uh, C-suites have the answer to that because they've been riding that horse for a while and they forgot about science or they forgot to do their cross checks. And uh, I think that's maybe what's coming to bite us right now. Trust, right? Trust is is, is um, kind of disappearing a little bit. And after all this, this investments, uh, which are quite existential, you know, the, the, they haven't been, they've happened for a long time and they have been big, but um, banks or investors want to see results. And if the, uh, wh whatever you put in, you know, when you go shopping somewhere and you don't get the, the material quality that you want, you won't go back. I heard a talk last week by Tudor Pickering Holt, an investment um, firm that consults for the industry, uh, investment banking. And their point was, we don't have an oil price problem, we have a perception problem. And the perception is partly oversupply, and I think oversupply gets back to your question about why now. Mm -hmm. um, but even so, I mean, having energy independence has a lot of value for our country. and. The um, <coughs> perception I is something we have to fight because it's partly um, political will and the feeling that people don't want to invest in an industry that some think is dying and some think needs to die. <laughs> um, so we have work cut out for us in terms of educating the public about the fact that fossil fuels are going to be around for a while. And yeah, it's useful, we need to move towards more sustainable energy sources, but in the meantime, they need us. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing uh, a shift across the board. We, our key performance indicators are being challenged. What do we actually think is good? Why did we think it was good to begin with? So from the geosciences perspective, most of it is the art of interpretation. You don't just come out of school thinking that, hey, I've got this, or if you do, you're really surprised. <laughs> Whoops. Um, but how across geosciences do we need to change our KPIs? How do, as the trends that you even mentioned, Donna, how do we go back and fix what we saw last time so that we aren't caught in some sort of secular nonsense and not progressing forward as an industry? Well, that asks for more science, frankly. Does it? Yeah, because basically, if, if and we went through this in the 80s, like we had all we the had, win. We had we had key performance indicators 
that were changing every month because <laughs> nobody could figure out what was going on with the business cycle when prices dropped in 85-ish and really tanked and kept tanking. We had... Know the feeling. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, here we were, I guess, kind of geoscience consumers trying to do stuff and our key performance indicators were changing for economics every month and, and that wasn't fixing anything. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you kind of take just that and get out of the major oil company mindset, but go to a, a smaller independent <coughs> style thing, it's like, you know, if something's not working, you need to unleash yourself from that concept of like, oh, my, in my performance indicator doesn't seem to be working. Well, well, get rid of that. Get out of the damn box. Use your science, use your engineering to kind of come back out and look at it fresh. I mean, to me, it just argues for taking a fresh look at stuff. And yes, you have to make budgets. You have to make money. That's what a business is. But it's kind of the creativity. That's when the creativity really has to bubble up and, and, and filter into your, into your work, into your organizations when the going gets really tough and nothing seems to be measuring things, right? Isn't that a clue? Sounds like a clue. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's what I think. Well, one of the problems we're seeing across industry is the loss of the transfer of technical skill sets. People are, they're being siloed more and more. We're, we lost laboratories that Marathon was doing years ago, and that was one of the things that really propelled everybody's career. Now we've passed it off in various capacities, to your point, Donna. Uh, small companies are where pivots can actually happen. Big companies are still stuck in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so that being the case, how do we transfer skill sets now? How do you make sure that you're not just getting locked into geo-steering and not actually stretching outside your role? And how do you make yourself valuable to companies these days? Because anybody can wake up and lose their job tomorrow right now. Wish I had a panacea for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can only go back to my own experience and, and it's been turbulent. <laughs> Uh, was you have to be passionate about this industry. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, you do, and you have to you have to have some kind of personal faith that that it'll that even though you're out of a job, that somehow opportunity will you will find opportunities. You but could start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, you yeah you could, but you you know, yeah, you can talk. My to resume people. is available. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> my, so my personal way to do it, and it was even before the oil and gas business, when I got into engineering geology, I was so pigeonholed. I mean, I did. In I what way? I was a field tech, and I went out and, you know, logged wells, and actually some of the things I did was crazy. I went down holes and looked for landslide slip planes. That was really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I decided that was not a great way to make a living. <laughs> um, Add that bullet point and, to And I resume. couldn't get out of that without changing. I went back to school and got a d another degree and kind of at that point then I became more valuable to different employers. Well so all of y'all are transferring your skill set. Y'all are mentors in various capacities. So what are you seeing from the younger geos up to some of older management? Well, especially for petrophysics, that's a very niche environment that you don't get in any college still. Uh, but it is very important. And for me, the way I got out of my pigeonhole was to be part of the SPWA from the pretty much very beginning. 
be involved. Um, but you know you only join societies yes. when it's like time to retire, right? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in my current role, I'm very involved in trying to get uh, student chapters created, uh, Colorado School of Mines being one, and uh, um, you know, worldwide. Um, and I think that's very important. The students need to be aware of what's out there, also because it's not, you know, just like we said, uh, if you're stamped as a geologist or as a geotech or something like that, the way you can get out of that is by uh, being involved in societies and gaining your knowledge and expanding your network. When people know what you do and when people know your name, it's much easier to have a resume land on somebody's manager's desk and know, okay, that name sounds familiar or I know somebody that knows somebody and our industry has always been like that, and it's even now uh, more than ever, um, that it's a very tight network. And uh, yes, society should get involved with students, and uh, students should get involved with societies. So that's, that's a symbiosis there that should always be there from the very beginning. Um, and uh, I know that the SPWA and RMAG is doing quite a bit um, for, for um, you know, getting involved with students, but also with education in general. And uh, uh, if it wasn't for the network that I had built back then in Houston, I would have never gotten a job up here. So, yeah. Well, Jane, you have an actually a very unique perspective because you have that small operator's perspective. So in many of those cases, you're not really hired for a specific role, you're hired for all the roles. <laughs> so that seems to be a better learning environment. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it is. I mean, you're, you're really, in an environment like that, you're really only limited by your own initiative. Um, when you work for a small operator, you wear many hats. You do whatever needs to be done. You, if the landman needs help making a map with leases on it, you help him with it if the engineer needs help. So you're less likely to be stuck in a silo, like, oh, you're a geologist, you only do geology. I really, th the time I felt most like I was part of a team was working at a small company, because we were all on the same team. We all had the same goals. And there were a lot of opportunities to sort of expand into things, to help out with things like doing evaluations and divestitures. And I got to present to the board every time we had a board meeting because it was such a small company. And that really helped me with my presentation skills. And, you know, it was a, it was a tremendous opportunity and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, but again, when you're a small operator and everyone's chasing resource plays, it's really tough to compete. Um, when your whole capex is 25 million, how many horizontal wells can you drill for 25 million? And if and they better work. So um, you know you're a little more on the edge, I guess, when you're with a small operator. But it's it was just such a tremendous experience and such a great education, and I met so many great people doing that. And then and also to RMAG, um, you know I I graduated from college in 1986. I think the price of oil was maybe 20 dollars a barrel at that time. So I figured, well, I might as well stay in school. Maybe things will be better when I get out of school. And, and, by <laughs> the time, <laughs> and they were a little better. I did manage to get a job. Um, and I always kind of worked for small operators. But it, there was a period of time where I lost my job three times in six years. So if you're going to be in this business, you just got to roll with it. I mean, that's, that's part of, of being in this business is Side accepting hustle. that. <laughs> and, and, you know, when times are good and you're making good money, save it because it'll help you get through the bad times. Mm -hmm. But 
at that point in time, I decided, well, I'm really not getting a whole lot of continuity and support from my employers, so that's when I got active in RMAG, because it provided me the continuity that I wasn't getting at that time. And I've, I've met all of these ladies through RMAG, and, and just going to a lunch and, and talking to people, it's a tremendous opportunity to network and expand your, your friends. I've made lifelong friends from it. So to me, the, the whole professional society thing is so much more than just the professional society. I mean, so many of my friends are in this society. So I, w I would advise that to anybody, get involved with your professional society. And that's true, not just early career, um, when you may be aware you need resources and a network, but mid-career people, they can do, getting back to Catherine's question about transferring skill sets, mm -hmm. we have the giving side of the transfer, teaching courses, giving talks, um, organizing courses, writing papers, but we have the receiving side, which is taking courses, going to talks, um, joining is, societies, volunteering. Is the receiving side as receptive as it should be, especially given the time? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I think it varies a lot. <laughs> I think the people that are open to that and that put themselves out there to um, learn and meet people um, have a f leg up when it comes, when the hard times do come. Hmm. Donna, are you seeing anything happening on campus? We're seeing less jobs available. Is it still worth being in this industry? Yes. Oh. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and, and I could be pessimistic about that, but I've gone through some ups and downs, and you have too, and you have too, and <laughs> you, have to, you have to have kind of this, uh, you have to be an optimist. And I guess I would say, I, know, I don't know about you, but we're explorationists. <laughs> and unfortunately, or, or for the better, we are optimists because that's you got to do that. So you have to kind of take that attitude in your life too. And I just and let me just say something. I wanted to build on something Jane was kind of starting to say is, um, and I went through this too when I was um, consulting, and I had um, zero chargeable work, which that's a you're not really consulting at that point. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, somebody I ran into, because I was in a study group, and that's another thing. There's informal groups that, that exist, too, that are networking things. He goes, you know, I don't know how to use PowerPoint. And I go, he goes, would you teach me how to do that? And I go, well, yeah. And he goes, I'll pay you. And I go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I could do this. Hashtag uh, I mean, It's kind of like you have to have this attitude It's like, I will do, I will wash windows, <laughs> I don't care. I will, I will find something to do to keep me going. And certainly that was part of the professional involvement, being on committees, um, you know, it was exposure. It was, I, when I went to interview for my job at, at EOG, the guy I was interviewing was, I read all your president's columns. I really enjoyed those. <laughs> I go, you did? <laughs> okay, that's good. And, and you know, it's just stuff like that. How do you put a number on that? Donna, you have groupies. You know this. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, though, my boss told me today he's sending me to Wyoming to uh, paint pump jacks. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing what you can do. Um, 
another thing people, I, some of my colleagues went back into the uh, K-12 education system. Mm -hmm. That would help fix a lot of things, I'm not gonna lie. Oh, I've gotta say, it would be great to have some good scientists teach STEM courses. Yeah, <laughs> and math. Right? Um, um, substitute teaching is a place to start. Some of them actually got teaching credentials. Um, and they stayed in the system until things got better, you know, and came back into the oil and gas business. So they, you, you take a, um, you might take a diversion, but, and you, you might wait for it to come back. You just have to be open to that possibility. Well, let's talk about generational changes across geosciences, because the last two generations have seen major shifts from plate tectonics to sequence stratigraphy. What the hell are both of those things? Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, so what do you think will be the next major shift for this generation or the one that's potentially coming out of school? What's gonna be our next discovery? What is going to redefine us as an industry outside of this industry downturn? The push for sustainability. In what way? Um, well, we got a lot of oil and gas. Yeah, we do, and we need, still need it. Yes. Um, but making our industry more sustainable and less polluting, and particularly the perception around the industry mm -hmm. um, that we're not, you know, big bad oil, and we're not ruining the environment, and um, so it's 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 public perception. It's um, actually putting our money where our mouth is. And the bigger companies, I think, have been better at this. You know, BP has, has green initiatives, and, and there are, yeah, yeah, Equinor, and um, so sustainability in the sense of um, making it more uh, palatable mm -hmm. to continue using oil and gas and to work in oil and gas, um, but also actually making the transition to cleaner energy. And we've gone a long way by substituting natural gas for coal, um, but we need to continue in that direction. So I would, what I see from the academic side is data science. That's a huge thing right at the moment. And Big data? Big data, data science. And so there's hope that by using data science algorithms, techniques, whatever you want to call it. This is not my wheelhouse, but there's a few people in this room who are pretty into it. That we will see relationships that we didn't see before. That's kind of my hope. Um, there's some other things that I have some caution about that, you know, I still think your brain is, is a really good data science machine, but it's, there's just so much out there that it's, it, the brain doesn't grasp it all. And I think, I'm thinking in the next decade that we'll, we will explore this, this kind of technology and really see, see if it's gonna show us something we don't know. So it's interesting you bring up big data, machine learning. This, these are hot topics for everyone and it seems every company knows they need to be involved in it, but only a few maybe have a grasp of what it actually means. Um, so what are y'all seeing going to happen? Are, there's this argument that we've always been a big data industry and with the introduction of cell phones and you know convenience factors such as Amazon, we've actually become lazier with our brains and you can't replace the art of interpretation, doesn't matter how good the computer is. So are we, sa are we getting lucky with accuracy and sacrificing preci precision? What is going to be the result of this and how is it going to affect future careers? 
I think what Donna said is right. The, the, the amount of data that we sit on is quite, quite big. So big data might help us to identify trends, but then again, the going back to the basics of stratigraphy is still very important in my opinion, because all these clouds and uh, regression lines and uh, uh, R squared of 8.8, .8, what does that mean? Who knows? Let's go look at the rock. Right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we need to still, uh, and I, I know from uh, my company that we are launching into a lot of machine learning. We have our own analytics team focused on predicting the future, so crystal balls and all that good stuff, but it's only gonna get us to a certain point. After a little bit, the machine is gonna just train on the same, and if it's right. bad data, it's gonna train on bad data. Right. But we, we still need to have your uh, uh, scientist hat on and see if it all makes sense. And uh, But yes, machines should be used to handle the amount of data, but so still the precision and the details still need to be coming from all of us. So I can't replace you? No. no. <laughs> I can't just fill out a log and have a petrophysicist. <laughs> so what, you're, what you're seeing, at, at, for example, at Mines is you're, you're seeing programs being put together by exact every department on campus that has some kind of data science um, twist to a degree or a degree in data science in the math department and PE and geology and mining. And so, so what you're seeing is kind of this assembly of stuff where people are trying to get in and figure out what they're doing. So right now, it's kind of building the platform, but we don't know what the platform's really gonna look like and actually what's gonna come out of it, mm -hmm. how's it actually gonna converge. And because every department in that case is doing their own thing, I'm kind of going, well, look, we're still propagating silos, so how do we get out of mm -hmm. that? Because that, to me, seeing the integrated team on the data science side is, is, is like the ultimate goal but we gotta, we gotta make that happen. And academics, it's not quite getting there yet from what I've seen. Well, Katarina, is data analytics really <coughs> making us better? Are we really improving? Are we really pushing forward? I mean, I know it's the next frontier, but have we really improved from it, from what you're seeing from your side? At, at this point, I think we're still learning to understand what it's telling us. Uh, in in uh, log analysis, we're using it right now for log editing. And uh, actually, uh, at the next symposium here in Banff, Canada, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, we're our the machine learning and data analytics papers that came in uh, compared to last year almost quadrupled. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to use this tool uh, as the next best thing after sliced bread, but I don't think that we s we know what we got still. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think we're still learning from it. We're still uh, trying to understand what it's telling us, and it's telling us something, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sure right? Yeah, right. <laughs> a lot yeah. of money. But but um, yeah, it, it's still it's it's such a uh, complex thing, um, almost like an animal, really. And uh, it, we're trying to understand what it's trying to tell you. It's it's not that clear yet. But uh, I think, it, like Anna, uh, uh, Donna said, we're we're still you know, creating a platform, maybe going in silos, and then we'll figure out, ooh, maybe we should work together again, you know? And <laughs> work together? <Yeah. laughs> we don't work together. There are <laughs> case studies coming out, and in fact, some of these professional societies locally that we've talked about, RMAG and DWS, are putting on a symposium in April on machine learning and big data. Mm -hmm. And they got a landslide of abstracts, and most of them are case studies. And they uh, pertain to 
things that we care about, and hopefully there will be some examples of where it didn't work. What about uh, from your perspective, Jane? Like, does we're in the age of consolidation. So, does is this the upper hand that small companies might need if they can wrap themselves and be more agile than larger companies? You know, when you're at s small companies, don't have all the resources that a large company has. So, a lot of times, you're kind of piggybacking on what the you let the bigger companies figure it out, and you kind of piggyback on that. And I guess my feeling is still that, you know, there's still kind of an art to geology, I like to think. It's not all just numbers. I mean, there's something to be said for a human being looking at those numbers and putting an interpretation on it, a depositional environment, or a, you know, is, was this, is this an offshore bar? Is this a river? Is this fluvial? Is it alien? And I feel like that is still important and maybe getting overlooked somewhat um, in all of this data. Um. Do you think that the data analytics sector will push us further away from the field? Because arguably, we're not sending young engineers, young geoscientists to the field like we should be, and we are losing that area of communication. So I, I think that's a mistake. I think I think all young um, engineers, geologists, just starting out, you need to spend time in the field because that's the ground truth. The rocks are the ground truth. Um, you, you know, numbers are numbers, but if they don't tell a story that, that matches what you're seeing on the ground, what good is it? So I think in some cases there's sort of a tendency to, you know, let the computer contour your map for you and not put any of your education into it, and I think that's wrong. I mean, I think it's important as a geologist, as a stratigrapher, you should be driving how that computer is contouring that map, what you're doing with that data, what it's telling you. So, ladies, I'm going to pivot on you. Uh, Donna, something you had said, or excuse me, Terry, something you had said earlier about the perception of the oil field in the general public and that we need to do a better job. And larger companies, to your point, are making the efforts, but arguably they're just putting up a green veil. They're shifting from being an oil and gas company to an energy company, just a marketing scheme. So what can we actually do better to integrate uh, more with the public so that we aren't big bad oil? What are we not doing well enough? What are y'all noticing trend-wise because you do have tenure in the industry? Well, we have a big need for public outreach to educate the public about um, what we provide and that we're conscientious about it. But no one wants to be preached at. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there is such a thing as leading by example. Okay. Um, and in Colorado, we do that constantly, and we're seeing increased opposition. Yeah. Like I said, you can't even get a body cremated anymore. It's just unreal. Well, and part of that goes back to hitting them early, having people in schools, mm -hmm. and having, we have a, Armag has a, an educational outreach group where we provide resources for teachers that are interested in hearing about what we do and how we do it. Mm -hmm. Um, we need more public outreach to adults because there's this enormous perception and that's reinforced by environmental groups um, that appeal to the emotions that you know fracking is destroying our groundwater and you know all kinds of you know adverse effects um, but yet we need to make people realize well you want cheap gas you drive a car even if it's electric powered where's the energy coming from um, so there's got to be a, a realization, a, a realistic uh, appraisal of 
the energy needs and how they're going to be supplied now and into the future. So Katarina, what are you seeing? Because you definitely have two small kids, and I know you've had some ups and downs with this. So going into our schools, what are we not doing well enough? What are we doing well enough? And how are we actually going to combat those that are saying the opposite when we leave? Mm -hmm. No, I think it's very important to be part of the discussion from the very beginning. Yes, I have uh, three of my boys are in elementary school, and uh, I've been asked uh, to come and present, you know, uh, talk about my job at school, but as soon as I mentioned that I work in oil and gas, the door shut pretty much right away. And uh, so it, the perception of, of uh, that is already in the schools is already not the right one. And they start to brainwash our kids too. And uh, th this is not you know, gonna end up positively for us. But uh, I take it up on to, uh, for myself to volunteer in schools, to be showing up at various different STEM schools, various different high schools, middle schools. But I think already in elementary school, that's when we need to start working. And RMAC has this very nice outreach too, but um, uh, I was hoping to get younger kids involved, younger kids to be part of our whole discussion in oil and gas. Uh, they don't even know what, uh, what we put into cars these days, right? They say, oh yeah, you go to the gas station and, and you, you drive off. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the whole, uh, to be part of the conversation is very important and like I said, from the very beginning, I, I almost uh, preach to my kids and they're tired <laughs> of hearing me that, but uh, oil and gas is part of our lives and we need to make them understand how important it is and even if we're gonna transition eventually one day, it will happen, but uh, it, it's gonna be a smooth one or it has to have a, be a smooth one because we can't just go from, you know, um, uh, what you call it, uh, from oil and gas and then all of a sudden going back to horses, for example. <laughs> horses, gonna, right? horsepower. Yeah, that's what, I mean, that's, it seems like everybody wants that, right? So that's, it's, it's a perception thing and it's uh, bad oil and gas and um, uh, like even at Energy Day one day, I was uh, volunteering for Energy Day that's happening now yearly here in Denver and a mom just came up to me and asked me about Flint, Michigan and how fracking caused Flint, Michigan. Well, I had to c c contain myself, right? Um, because there were kids I might around. edit that part. <laughs> so, but uh, kindly tell her that Flint, Michigan had nothing to do with oil and gas. It was just an industry accident and a lot more other stuff was involved there, uh, but definitely no oil and gas. And she didn't quite like it, but her little boy <laughs> liked my fossil collection, so he stayed and I could continue talking to him. <laughs> Well, arguably, there is this need for a unified energy front. And I think oil and gas does a really good job of saying we use wind, we use solar. We've been integrated for decades, but we haven't promoted it to your ladies' points. So is it time for oil and gas to draw a line in the sand, or do we need to keep taking a step back, not necessarily creating a polarization, uh, but being more willing to have a frank conversation? Because I feel like at some point we need to stop backing up. So how, do, so there's, you know, in Colorado, gosh, the um, the oil and gas industry, what's it, the CRED commercials? Yeah, gosh, yeah. Those are really good, and I, I enjoy them. I don't know what people who are on the other side of the pole think about them. They, they probably think they're propaganda. But I've struggled with this personally, and I'm trying to figure, I've been trying to figure out what can I do personally um, and actually, it builds on something you said about at the energy days, like you had an adult come up to you with this misconception, 
And you, as a person and a scientist, said, no, it's like this. And so that's, that's where I've decided, at least personally I can do, is one-on-one -on -one misconceptions. Um, I do a lot of trekking recreationally, and I, I, this one trek I was on in Britain two years ago was particularly interesting. I had two professors on the trek who are both ecologists from um, one of the state universities in New York, which is pretty anti-fracking. Very. Um, and so we got talking over beers and wine about what we do, and they told their profession, and, and I was just sitting there, and my husband's looking at me, go, oh, it would be interesting <laughs> to see what you say. <laughs> <laughs> and they got done, they looked at me, and I go, I frack wells. <laughs> <laughs> and they were be just, proud, damn they it. were stunned. <laughs> I mean, and I go, do I have fangs? <laughs> Did you ask no. that? You asked them if you had fangs. I, I said, do I have fangs? And they go, no. And I go, I'm just a person. This is what I did in my profession. I've <laughs> cracked many wells in my life. And they were just, as I said, they were very taken aback. And I said, and I make no bones about it, um, I would love to have a conversation with you and if you're willing to listen to what I have done, mm -hmm. what I can tell you factually. And they did, eventually, you know, over the trip. And, you know, did I sell them on it? I don't know. But I felt like, at least on a one-on-one -on -one basis, I told them what, what happens and, you know, it's <laughs> a mile to two miles down below the earth and, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, people tend to live in a half space that starts at the surface and goes up maybe a thousand feet in the weather zone. <laughs> they don't understand what's underneath. Yeah. And so that, that alone is just a huge educational barrier, you know, it, so I just, I just decided to, to try to do it one-on-one, -on -one, just everybody, I even had one person, I said I was in the energy business, oh, do you do solar? I go, no, I do oil and gas. Well, that's not energy. It's like, oh, <laughs> really? Okay, well, yeah, let's talk about that. You know, we so, got bigger problems with that series. Yeah, and, and so, you know, it's really a dilemma. There's so many paradoxes. Um, yeah, I wore a Patagonia jacket in here. One of my friends would fry me for that. Yeah. But you know what? They're made of hydrocarbons. <laughs> <laughs> we have Preach, so many Donna. Paradoxes. Recycled hydrocarbons. It's like, yeah, I don't know how to deal with it. It's like if you want to be polarized and black and white, that's just the easy solution. And, and unfortunately, that's where politics ends up. So, so I guess as a citizen, who has knowledge of what goes on under the ground and have done this professionally, I figure it's, I'm, I will talk to anybody, anytime, one-on-one, -on -one, and if they want to walk away, that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's up to them. But I've got, you've got to start somewhere and be rational about it. And I, I, that's my first step. And I think us, especially being passionate about our, uh, uh, you know, uh, our jobs, but also about our industry, is is really what will eventually educate people or bring them on the other side. If we and uh, you know you were, we've been talking about downturns, and if we wouldn't have been passionate about this industry, we would have you know be uh, checking out at Safeway or something, right? But yeah, yeah. but uh, this is this is something that I felt too as I visit the students' chapters as well as other students uh, in general that have been even at Colorado School of Mines, they have been asking me some tricky questions uh, about <laughs> sustainability and oil and gas and 
and all of that, but uh, that's why I like to be involved with, with uh, younger kids as well, like I said, just because I think the perception of various aspects in life, but in general also for our oil and gas industry gets formed very early, and we need to catch it at an early age for us to make an impact. And with the passion that we have, we, we eventually will. Well, ladies, I know we are wrapping up towards the end here and we'll be opening it to questions from the audience, but before we do so, I know we're always talking to the new generations, how to be a successful geoscientist, how to get your foot in the door, and that's all fine and great, but what is the advice y'all have for management? Because I know y'all have advice for management. <laughs> so, Katarina, if you kick us off on that one, how do we, how does management stay not disconnect from teams? Well, management is, is under big pressure these days, I have a feeling. They, they really bend and, and try, uh, or yeah, bend to the pressure of that comes down from the investors and from people that have the monies, which makes sense. But if we scream fire over there, you know, you, you gotta listen and uh, maybe pay attention to that. And I think we're not at the turning point yet of that, but I think that at, at the, their, or the difficult times that we're going through right now, it is important to get the big picture from your own people because at the end of the day, investors will come and go, but your people will be the ones that are invested in your company in a real sense. So I think um, if, if people stop following curves, <laughs> trend lines, and uh, <laughs> actually looking at the whole entirety of your entire, I mean, uh, a management has uh, wonderful science, scientists on their teams and just taking a couple minutes to go and listen to what they have to say would maybe help. I'd like to build on that a little bit. Um, developing your people is something I would tell management. Encourage hmm. your staff to go to conferences, to go to luncheons, to network, to learn. Um, but beyond that, the ongoing need for geoscience and the need for integration. These are themes we've talked about before, but management's where the rubber hits the road and, and the people that control what really happens inside companies. Hmm. So need for geoscience integration and develop your people. Jane, what do you think, small company? Well, again, with a small company, I was fortunate in that um, the management was always, you know, we talked to management on a daily basis and they were always very engaged and, and were really pretty good about listening to what people said and, and they were also um, really pretty good about developing people. So I guess I've been pretty fortunate, at least in the latter part of my career. Um, but yeah, I think it's that listen to your people and, and give your people the opportunity to do what they want to do and, and need to do and I think it'll I think it pays off if you give people that freedom um, to, to kind of step up and and do what needs to be done so ladies what's the next big play <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. Well, ladies, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. We love getting your perspective on the patch. You have provided such value, and I know that everyone in here is going to ask you a million technical questions because I did not. So, <laughs> And so thank you so much. All right. And to our audience, thank you for joining. This is the Crude Audacity podcast in OGGN, and we look forward to having you at our next one. So see you soon. Well, what did y'all think? 
Nothing too technical this time around, but damn was that fun and awesome perspectives on today's oil patch. As you know, the Crude Audacity and OGGN will be hitting 2020 hard. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for the podcast or for upcoming events, give me a shout and we will get you all the details. Check out the schedule at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Until next week, give them hell. Hey y'all, as you know, I am proud to be oilfield and proud to be an American. And as a proud American, I am committed to supporting our veterans, which is why I want to discuss veteransmatter.org. There are systems and structures in place that aid our veterans in receiving housing assistance. Yet we have so many vets still living on the streets, not because they have not gone through the proper channels or filled out all the mounds of paperwork, but because the VA isn't able to deliver deposit checks to landlords in the proper timeframes. So despite all the efforts, vets are turned away from their housing options. Veteransmatter.org is changing that. They provide the deposits in a timely and efficient manner that helps our vets get into the homes they need. To date, they have placed over 3,000 veterans in 22 states. This is an amazing program and an amazing cause, and if you are interested in getting involved, please visit them at www.veteransmatter.org and see what you can do to help.